Well, good morning to each of you. It's so good to see you this morning. Uh, we want to welcome you to Joliet First. We're at Joliet First. It is our mission to make Joliet First. Uh, we have said that that part of our identity is wanting to become a community of hope. And we've kind of looked at scriptures and it, it said that, that God called the farmers to leave the edges of their field for the people who needed hope the most. And so we've been asking here at our church, what does it look like for us to be hope for the world? And that really, really is kind of an, an ambiguous thought. But I think many of us recognize hope when we see it. And so we felt as a church that to, to kind of move us into what hope would look like, we'll have four principles that are going to shape who we is as God's people. And so we said this, that we will seek God and seek his kingdom with everything that we have, that we will relentlessly pursue God with everything that we have in the same way that he relentlessly pursues each of you. We also said that we are going to invest, so we, we seek and we will invest now, I know often when you hear this word invest, you think the pastor is asking for money. But quite frankly, uh, I mean, money matters, but we don't care about your money here. What matters to me is that you begin to use your gifts, your time, and your talents to invest in other people who need hope in their life. And so it's when we seek and we invest that we begin to restore those people in need of hope into the image of God and into the person that God has created them to be. So our goal is that we might be a church that sends people into the world. So welcome to Joliet First this morning. We are continuing our series group, God's Plan for Creating and Sustaining Community. If you've missed us over the last few weeks, the first week we said this, that, that our, our connection to Christ is only as, our, as, only as healthy as our connection to others and Christ. And we said this, that we believe circles are better than rows, or we believe that circles are better than sanctuaries. Now before you label me a heretic, hear what I'm saying. We believe that, that circles give us a better understanding of our faith than sanctuaries do. Often when you come to church, sanctuaries kind of elicit questions. Why do they do what they do? And so we landed on this idea that, that we should break bread together. And we, we, we ended the sermon by saying that we must begin to see our tables as a place of sacred space. That when we eat together, God meets us in that presence. And then when we're eating together, we receive the full nourishment. That God wants for his people. The other thing that we said last week was we talked about sharing and credibility. You see, credibility is gained when we share experiences. People begin to respect us for some of the experiences we have. But often in the church, we want to keep appearances. And so we said, credibility is gained when we quit keeping appearances and we start sharing our experiences with other people. Because when you begin to share your experience with other people, you, you gain a credibility that allows people... To speak into your life. But, but it also allows you the opportunity to speak into theirs. And that's the whole goal of the group. And so today we're going to be looking at an idea that I think is one of the most important parts of small groups. Now let me just take this minute to talk to you about small groups. Everybody who's on vacation this summer, I'm sorry, you're missing the big idea. You're not here so you can't hear me anyway, so it doesn't really matter. But I'm glad you're here because you're going to know what's going on. Uh, we have said that small groups is essential to the life of the church, and we'll talk about that later today. But in September, after Labor Day, we're going to move into small groups. And you're asking, well, what does that look like? We've already started recruiting leaders, and the leaders don't know it yet, but we're going to do a turbo group with them, where we teach them how to lead small groups. We're going to mentor them on what it means to lead a group. And during that time, they're going to be calling 
you. And they're going to be contacting you to say, would you like to be part of my group? And our goal, our first year, is to have 60% of people involved in small groups. But I think we can surpass that in the first year. And so you'll be contacted while they're leading, while I'm teaching them how to lead groups. And you'll be put into groups together. And it's not that we're just, it's not going to look like fantasy football where you pick, you know, it's not going to look like that. We want you to connect with people that, that, that are in some ways like you. You're in the same stage of life. You're, you have the same commonalities. I mean, let's be real. You've been around those people that you don't connect with, and it's not fun to be with them, right? It's just awkward. Conversation doesn't flow well. So we're not going to put you with those people. We're going to put you with people that you love being around and that you can share with, that you can eat with. That's, the, that's what we're going to do. Uh, some of you are asking, well, what does is, what is, what is Wednesday night and Sunday night look like? When are we going to do our Bible studies? Small groups will become our Bible studies. Some of you are saying, well, we're not having service anymore. No, listen, we are enhancing. We are enhancing what we do on Sundays. So we will be in small groups on Wednesdays and Sundays. We will still have kids on Wednesday nights here. So if you show up on a Wednesday night after September, you're going to be expected to serve. (laughs) So unless you're willing to help, don't show up. Um, So that's that's where we are in small groups. That's the big plan for us. And so I think... I think today's idea is extremely important to the life of group. And I believe that, that it is, once again, God's plan for creating and sustaining community. Will you pray for me? Lord, I, I have to admit that I need your help this morning. So I, I'm asking that this be your words this morning and not mine. That these be your thoughts and not mine. And Lord, I pray for these people here this morning that they've come and they've opened their hearts and their minds to what you would have them say. May the ultimate result be obedience. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, I have to be honest with you this morning, as I am every week, I'm still getting used to the Chicago culture. Just saying, it's not, we're not in Kansas anymore. I know I say that all the time, it's just the truth. Uh, but recently, I took my kids to uh, Brookfield Zoo. I love Brookfield Zoo because it's a kid-friendly zoo. And when I say kid-friendly, that's because the only friendly people there are the kids. Uh, (laughs) A few weeks ago, I was standing in line for the dolphin show, uh, wanting to get tickets. And quite literally, this lady walks up and cuts in front of me. She didn't even call cuts. She just cut in front of me. And I, I thought to myself in that moment, I cannot remember the last time that somebody actually cut in front of me. And I was thinking back and thinking back to when somebody, I think it was elementary school, where we learned you do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I learned that in a non-Christian school, right? We learned those things. Uh, But she cut in front of me. And I didn't know how to react in this situation. I was so angry at the moment. And, and, and I thought that maybe the way that I could respond is with sarcasm. I love, how many of you love sarcasm? I love sarcastic jokes. It is the best humor. It really is the worst humor when teaching teens, but it's the best, I think. Uh, so, so I thought maybe I'll make a sarcastic comment that she'll, she'll get what I'm trying to say without actually saying it. And, um, but, but what I found is in that moment and the injustice of her cutting in my ticket line for dolphin tickets, uh, I realized something that, in this moment, I was silenced. I was involuntarily inside. I was, I was silenced by this moment. And I didn't know how to respond to her. And my guess is you have, have been in situations in your life where you've been silenced. So I want to think about this idea. Last week, we talked about people who tend to overshare. 
right? I even was an example. I told you a story that many of you probably went home and said, why did he tell us that story? Sorry about that. I just wanted to give you an example. But today I want you to think about the opposite idea. Has there been a time in your life where you saw something, you've been part of a situation where you knew you should have said something, but you remained silent in that situation? Perhaps uh, somebody uh, started a vicious rumor about you, and And everybody began to believe that rumor, and you knew that if you tried to defend yourself, and you tried to speak truth into that moment, that nobody would believe you. And so you were left silent in that moment, because silence was the best response for you. Maybe maybe you've witnessed somebody at work being treated poorly by an employer. But in that moment, you knew you should have said something, but you didn't. And the reason you didn't say anything is because if you were to say something to the boss man, you would lose your job and put your family at jeopardy. And so instead of stepping in in that moment and actually saying something that should be said, speaking truth into that moment, you said, I I think for now I'm just not going to say anything at all. Uh, Students, teenagers, uh, maybe you've witnessed a student cheating. And you decided that you weren't going to say anything because that student just so happened to be your best friend. And you realize that it would be better for me to maintain this relationship with them and not tattle on them. And so you stayed silent in that situation. I think, I think there are often times in life, especially when we're public and we see people doing things that they shouldn't do, where we should be speaking truth into a situation and we remain silent. And so this morning, I want us to, to think about this. Because there are moments in our spiritual journey where we need to speak truth. Instead, we're silent. And the silence, the silence is really what is the death of many of you. So if you would, turn with me to Psalm 32. We're going to be in Psalm 32 this morning. Uh, It's either in your worship folder. You can pick the Bible in front of you and turn to Psalm 32. Before we read the scripture together, though, I, 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 need to, I need to fill you in on the writer. Many of you know David. Many of you, you have heard of David, but don't tune me out because this is still important to the story. You see, David wrote this song. He wrote this poem to God in a moment that was extremely important in his life. You see, many of you know that David uh, killed Goliath. He was this little shepherd boy that comes out and he kills Goliath. Everybody knows that story. And instantly, like... Overnight, it was like a YouTube gone viral. He became famous with, with the Israelite people. And so Saul, the king at the time, was out, and David, be, he was in. He was in like that. But then we know what happens when people get put in positions of power. You see, they tend to forget the very God that has given the gift and given them the power to lead. And so David, in a moment of selfishness, does something that God never intended him to do. You see, David was supposed to be, for all people, the image and hope of salvation. And so in that moment, he, he's up on his rooftop, and he's looking down, and he sees a lady bathing. And he says to himself, Self, I think I would like to sleep with that woman. And so he, he has his servants go and get this woman, and he sleeps with the lady. And the lady becomes pregnant. But worst of all, worst of all, she's married. And not only is she married, she's married to a soldier who is off fighting for the country, fighting for David and his people. And all of a sudden, David devises a plan to to make it right on his own terms and on his own power. And what's interesting is he calls this man, this, this, this husband back from war. And his plan is that when he comes back, he'll be gone for so long that he'll want to be with his wife. 
this, this guy was so faithful, not only to his country, but to his comrades. And so he comes back, and he doesn't even spend time with his wife. And so David decides to be Tony Soprano. And he, 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 he calls his hitman out, and he, he has them on the front lines kill this lady's husband. It wasn't the enemy. It, wasn't, it, was, it, was, it was the hitman of David who went out and killed this man. So David has slept with somebody he shouldn't have. He had an affair. And then he murdered. He murdered the husband of this woman. And David begins to feel, after somebody came to him and said, look at what you've done, he began to feel the guilt and the weight of that sin. And here's what he says. I love it. He says it in verse, in chapter 32. He says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against, against them. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. I'm going to stop there for a minute. David does something interesting in the very beginning verses of this poem. You see, he uses three words. He uses these words, sin, three different times. He says transgression once. But, but you see, in the Hebrew language, they only had three words for sin. And so what David is saying from the very get-go is, I am guilty of all three of these different components of sin. And the first one, this word transgression, translated pesha, literally means that it was a wrongdoing or a wrong action of injustice against somebody else. Hence, sleeping with somebody's wife and then murdering their husband. But transgression also means uh, almost like a, a standing upright defiance against someone. My son's doing this right now. Uh, I'll tell him to do something. And I know that he hears me, but he pretends like he doesn't hear me. And then he'll go off and do exactly the opposite of what I just told him to do. It's defiance. That's transgression. The other, the other idea that David wants us to give this morning is this word hata, which many of you know sin as missing the mark. Now, I wrote in my Bible this week, uh, what does it mean to miss the mark? You see, we always define sin as missing the mark, but nobody actually defines what the mark is. And so I think think that God created his people. In the very beginning of the creation story, we see that his people are in an amazing relationship with him. There's not only with him, but with each other. And so there's this deep relationship where God's love and his mercy and, and his beauty and his power and his majesty is extended into that relationship. And it's only in that context of relationship that we begin to experience what human life was meant to be like. And as we begin to experience that humanity, the way that God designed it, we then begin to reflect back to God those very things. That we reflect His glory back to Him. But it is our responsibility in that relationship and as we experience the goodness, what God calls good, to reflect back to the world the image of His creativity, of His beauty, and of his power, and most of all, of his salvation. So the mark is about becoming expressions of God's salvation to the world. That's what it means to mix the mark. See, often we'll say, uh, well, sin is a bad thing, which it is. 
But that's not compelling to me. All that says to me is you need to avoid certain things. What compelling is to me is this idea that when we miss the mark, we miss out on life the way God designed it. David goes on to tell us the third part of this sin is this is this wrongdoing. But with this idea of wrongdoing, it has an association of responsibility and guilt. So what David wants to tell us today, he wants us to give a picture that David has done so wrong and, and, and the weight of his sin is beginning to build up that he feels responsible and guilty for what he's done. And so he gives us this image of being drawn into a courtroom and he stands before the judge and everybody knows what he's done. He's murdered and he's had an affair. And if you know anything about Hebrew law, you would know that the sentence for just one of those things is death. So David begins to express to us this morning. He begins to express to us this morning the power of sin. Listen to his words. He says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength, my strength. My energy, my life was sapped. As in the heat of the summer. I want you to listen to what David is saying in that moment. He's saying that in this moment of sin, when my energy is being released and sapped out of me, it is moving me to the point where I am paralyzed. Paralyzed by the very sin that has taken over my life. Matthew, it's interesting, Jesus, when Jesus heals the paralytic in Matthew, there are some scholars who will argue that, that this guy wasn't paralyzed because, because he was born that way or he was in a donkey accident. Some people believe that he was paralyzed. Some scholars argue he was paralyzed because he had done something so egregious in his life, something so outrageous in his life, that over time, sin paralyzed him. The power of sin paralyzed him in his life. And, and, and they argue that because Jesus doesn't say to him right away, he doesn't say, get up and walk. The first thing he says is, your sins are forgiven. And Jesus addresses our immediate need. And so David wants to tell us this morning about the power of sin and the depth of it and what it can do to our lives when we don't deal with it. And I love what he says. He says something interesting at the beginning before he expresses the weight of what he's feeling. He says, in my silence. It's in my silence that my bones wasted away. It was in my silence that I groaned all day long. It was in my silence that your hand was heavy on me. And it was in my silence that my strength and my life was taken away from me. You see, it is sin's goal. It is sin's mark to keep you silent. You see, I don't believe that, that, that sin actually has power over you. But the moment that you keep silent, the moment that we keep silence, we, we empower sin to have power over us. And I think this morning, I think this morning, we have to understand that, that it's not sin, it's the silence that has the power over us. And I think when we keep silent, in many ways, what we are saying is, I am going to hold on to the responsibility of that sin. Hey, God, I know you're all-powerful. I know you're omnipotent. I know you're amazing. 
But in my silence, I'm going to deal with sin the way that I want to. You see, it's in your silence that you assume and you feel like you have the right to to deal with your own sin. And so the reality is this, is that God wants to forgive you. God wants to give you healing, but you need to learn to get out of your own way. The problem for many of you is not God. The problem is you. And it's because you think you have the power to deal with your own sin. And let me just say this. Silence is a rejection of God's grace. Silence is a rejection of God's grace this morning. There are some of you here this morning. I I get it. I, I know you. In fact, I am you. There are some of you this morning who have done some crazy things. There are some of you who have been part of some crazy things. There are some of you who you didn't do anything, but sin has been brought against you. Sin is a, is, a, is a nasty thing because it affects everybody. And so maybe you weren't guilty of it, but guess what? Maybe something somebody did something to you, and, and, and I know for a fact that your past always meets you in your present. That you can't escape it. You can't get away from it. You lay up at night and you think about your past. And we, we really remain slaves to our past. And we can't live the life that God wants us to in the present. Am I right this morning? Anybody feel like that ever? Some of you do. Thank you for shaking your heads with me. So I need you to hear this morning. It is sin's goal to keep you silent. But I love what David says. He says, then... Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I didn't cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. No longer am I in the courtroom before the judge who was going to put me to death, but you've forgotten it all. I think in many ways, when we begin to confess to God, when we begin to speak out loud, when we begin to break the silence, we move to a deeper relationship where we experience God's love in a new way like we've never experienced it before. And you have to understand, if silence is a rejection of God's grace, the confession is a reliance on His love. If, 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 if silence... If silence, I'm having a moment here. (laughs) If silence is a rejection of God's grace, confession is a reliance of his love. And so I believe that, that in our silence, we allow sin the power to break us. But it's in our confession that we hand that power off to the very one who has the power to break sin. I love the language. He says, it's as though your hand was upon me. And I think in many ways what David is trying to express to us is that God is willing and ready to take it from him. But he is yet to confess. In fact, he wants to keep the silence. And he continues to reject God's grace. God's hand is right there, willing and ready to help him. And the moment he confesses, the moment he speaks to God and says, I am a sinner. I have murdered this man. I have slept with this woman and I've tried to hide it all. It was in that moment that he's forgiven. And I think he begins to experience what he describes in verse 1 and 2. Happy, that's the word blessed there. Happy are those whose transgressions are forgiven. Happy are those whose sins are covered. Happy are those who God does not count their 
sinned against them anymore. And notice this. After that moment that he confesses, David speaks no more about sin in the text. No more do we see this word sin come up in his life in chapter 32. And what I love is this idea that God calls his people righteous in this moment. You see, to be righteous is to be forgiven. And I think to be righteous is to be a witness of God's grace to the world around us. And so it's in the forgiveness that God makes you right. He sets you right. He calls you righteous. I think David this morning gives us a good picture of what confession looks like. But I think James does a better job of giving us the context for confession. You see, in James 5, we'll go there in a minute, but in James 5, he begins to talk about sickness. And I think that in some sense, he's talking about physical sickness. But I think what James is really expressing is the weight of sin has the power to make you feel as though you were sick. Because he talks about sin in that. And he says, I want to take this idea that Jesus said to us that we should love one another and that by our love, people will know that we are Christ's followers. And I think James wants, wants to take this idea of one anothering to a whole different level. In fact, listen what he says in James 5. He says this, if anyone among you is sick, he says, let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. I think James gets it this morning. He gives us the context for confession. So here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want you to know this morning. Write this down. This is important. Sin becomes powerless when we confess in the context of togetherness. Sin becomes powerless when we confess in the context of togetherness. So what I need you to do this morning is I want you to look at the person to your right and I want you to say to them that sin has no power over me. Do it right now. Oh, come on, be excited about it. Turn to the right and tell them, sin has no power over me. Yeah, that's right. Turn to the person on your left and tell them, sin has no power over me. You see, God's plan for creating and sustaining a healthy community is that we confess in the context of community. When we confess together, we grow together. When we confess together, we grow together. And this is how God maintains a healthy community. Now, some of you, some of you, I get it. You're like the Israelites. You're stiff-necked. I ain't doing small groups. You ain't going to make me do this, Pastor. I'm not going to be part of that. This is just change for the sake of change. I don't want to do that. Well, I hate to tell you, but, but this is actually an old practice that was introduced by some of our founding fathers. What Some of you know John Wesley. John Wesley. John Wesley had two different directions. He, he was trying to figure out which way to go, and he found 
that these bands or these societies or their groups is where real discipleship, not Sunday school, not Sunday nights, in small groups is where real discipleship, real mentoring, real credibility was built where we could share and confess to each other. In fact, he believed that it was so important that you actually had to get a ticket to go to church. And he said this, he said, uh, if you're not part of a group, you're, you're not in. In fact, you're out. In fact, we won't even allow you to just come haphazardly. Every once in a while, you show up. We expect that you come every week to group. And oh, by the way, then you can come to church. In fact, when you come to group, we'll give you a ticket. We'll give you a ticket, and then you can be part of the church. It wasn't the other way around. You come to church and then be part of a group. It was you be part of a group. You learn what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ, and then you get to be part of the big church. Because now, now you aren't misrepresenting the church. I think that's the greatest issue today, is that we have people who misrepresent the church because they've never been discipled on what it looks like to be like Christ. And so, Wesley had these these guidelines for what these groups look like. And I love the very first statement that he says. Here's not a rule, but a guide. For, guide number one. They, the believers, will meet together once a week to confess their faults to one another. And they are to pray for one another so that they may be healed. In fact, Wesley thought this was so important that he actually came up with some questions. How would you like to answer questions like this at the beginning of your group? Uh, what known sins have you committed since our last meeting? <laughs> well, uh, do we have two or three hours? Um, what temptations have you met with over the week? How were you delivered by those? What have you thought, said, or done that wasn't like Christ? <laughs> now we're going on five hours. Uh, And he says, what is it that you, listen to this, what is it that you desire to keep a secret? What is it that you desire to be silent about? You see, he got this. David gets this. The writer of James gets this. That power, that sin loses its power when we confess in the context of togetherness. So here's what I need you to do. Let me talk to my folks who've been part of this church for most of their life. There are some of you, let me just say this, the one, those of you out there that are saying, I don't need to be part of a group, you probably need to be part of a group. Because you're the ones that need the most help. In fact, I think, I think group is where we begin to keep people accountable. See, some of you don't think you need accountability, but because you think that, you actually need accountability. You need somebody in your life to speak into your life. And so what I need you to do, what I need you to do is to be a part of the life of this church. Because this is the plan for discipleship. This is how we make Christ followers. And so I need you to begin to pray. Begin to pray about who it is that you're going to be in group with. And if you have a hardened heart, if you are stiff-necked, I need you to begin to pray about your heart and your stiff neck. We'll get you a pillow for it, too. You know, the ones that go around your neck. But I need you to begin to pray about who it is God wants you to be with. Uh, There are some of you here who aren't Christians. There are some of you here who... You just don't even believe in God at this moment. There are some of you here who... who you would say, I don't think God exists. I think He's off in the distance. 
I think maybe he's got better things to do other than me. And here's your problem, is that over your lifetime, you've tried to deal with something that you can't even deal with on your own. You've tried to take care of. You've tried to be silent about. You've tried to hide. And let me just say this morning, this morning, this could be, as Jessica would say, the first day of the rest of your life. This could be the first day of the rest of your life. And so I believe that eternal life that Jesus talks about begins the moment you say yes to him. And it begins the moment that you confess. You confess to your God that you can't do it alone. And you confess the problems and issues that have been part of your life for so long. And I think that in that moment, as you, you break the silence, you're now giving the power of sin to the very one who has the power to deal with it. So this morning, I would... There are some of you, quite frankly, that just need to come up here this morning. There are some that need to come and confess to the very God that has the right and the, the ability to love you in a way that you've never been loved before. Not by anybody else. Not by your mom, not by your dad, not by your girlfriend. It's right here. So I'm going to ask Jeannie to come up this morning and, and, and play for us. But if you need a moment this morning to confess, we'll have people that will come and pray with you. This is your time. Let me pray for you this morning.